This is God's word. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Read that far from God's word. We expect the water department to have water. We expect if the firehouse catches on fire, it won't burn down, but that the firemen will put out the fire in their own building. We expect our Olympic team to have strong athletes who enjoy representing the United States. We expect churches to maintain unity and harmony. We do. We, we just expect it. Not musically, although that's nice. Relational unity and spiritual harmony. It's, it's expected of God, of the apostles, of God's people, even of the world. It's ironic if you have the water department run out of water. It's ironic if a church runs out of harmony. Our Lord Jesus himself taught this same truth that Paul is writing here in Matthew 12, 25. No city or house divided against itself will stand. Let me ask you this. When did Paul decide to write the letter of 1 Corinthians? Perhaps, and likely, Paul decided to write the letter of 1 Corinthians when he first heard that there were divisions in the church. Perhaps it was at that moment that Paul knew that he had to write this letter, the letter of reminders. Harmony was the first topic that Paul brought up in this letter, which is why I say it's likely. After Paul got past the traditional opening of the letter, which we've studied, all the reminders about grace and God's faithfulness, which we've studied, Paul's ready to bring up the first item in a list of corrections needed in the church in Corinth. First topic, church harmony. Paul's answer, the main point of my sermon, Christ calls us to preserve church harmony by the power of his cross. That, that's Paul's answer. And he goes through the list in verse 10, no divisions. In verses 11 to 13, no quarrels. In verse 13b to 17, no disagreements, especially about the basics. So here first, Paul comes right out and requests all the people to agree. Listen again to the passionate and loving dive into this topic in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same minds and the same judgment or purpose. Here Paul literally wrote, I call to you. It says it's just fine English standard translation, I appeal to you. But for those who studied with us the last sermons, the last verses here, 1 through 9, 
the word call has started to take on significance already in our study of 1 Corinthians. So you could literally be translated, I call to you, brothers. It's significant because of how often Paul's already starting to use that word, that, that verb, that word that can be translated and used in a sentence either as a noun or a verb, depending on where he is. Let me just quickly review for you. Verse 1, Paul wrote that Paul himself had been called by God to be an apostle. Verse 2, the church members were called to be saints or summoned by God to walk close to God as we looked at. Verse 2, the second half, the believers in every place were the ones who were to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 9, all the sons of God were called into the fellowship of God's son, Jesus. So you see that, the pattern of using this word, call. Now the fifth time in ten verses, that Paul was showing them calling is beginning to be a theme. What does God call them to in the situation in which they find themselves? Called to do what? What does it mean? In verse 10, they were called to agree. He appeals to them to agree. The opposite of to agree is to possess divisions. And so Paul was saying the same thing in two ways, both positively and negatively. Positively, everyone agree. Negatively, have no divisions among you, he literally wrote. So divisions here is a, is a word for splits or rifts or tears, schisms, discord, cliques, parties, groups, or factions. You know what a division is. How would a church know whether it possesses divisions or not? Well, one way to tell that divisions are coming or being threatened is when quarreling has begun. He, he lists that out here. And thankfully in Corinth, those quarrels had not yet resulted in full divisions. And Paul wrote that they had to do something about it. That's why he's writing now. What, what must they do? Verse 10, God's word instructs that they had to be united. To become united. Well, that's easy to say. It's like saying, get in shape, be in shape. Well, how do you do that? It's a lot of steps. How? The word itself actually contains within it the instruction for how, how to do it. The word literally means to line back up again, to step in line. My wife is a first grade teacher, as you know, and the first graders go all over the place until you tell them to line up, and you turn away and you look back and they're all jambled again. Line back up, line up. That's what this word united means. One excellent English word to bring over the meaning to our minds from Greek for this verb is our English word to arrange to arrange, line up, or to arrange. Paul is saying, O quarreling groups, arrange yourselves, adjust yourselves in such a way that we line up again, prepare yourselves for good order and for a full completion of this goal. What's the goal? Not divisions, but rather the goal is to be mended back into what? Filed or arranged back into what? What was it that would signal the reverse of quarrels? And here it is in verse 10. The same mind, but that you be united or arranged or lined up in the same mind. The same judgment or purpose. Having the same thinking, making the same decisions, looking at the situation and assessing it with the same diagnostic the same perspective, the same intentions, the same disposition of heart, the same resolve. 
How could people in Corinth who had been torn apart into opposing or arguing parties come back into that sort of united, arranged, aligned mind again? It doesn't mean they all had to have the exact same opinion of everything. Of course not. That isn't even possible. Not even right. It must mean something else. It means that we agree to maintain a warm congeniality with each other that is genuine and heartfelt even though we don't share the same opinion. That is the step towards preserving harmony. That is what Christ, through his apostles, was calling the church to do here. It's so important. I, I take a moment to illustrate, and I, I don't mean to put this in a light manner by using a perhaps somewhat humorous illustration, but rather to let it soak in for a minute as we, as we focus on what illustrations do. My illustration is hot dogs. Hot dogs in my family. There's six of us, as you know, and we have different opinions about what goes on a hot dog. I say put ketchup on hot dogs. Please don't judge me for this. I add mustard and I add onions and I add relish. Not sweet relish, the good relish. Okay? I say that's how a hot dog ought to be done. That's my opinion. One person in my family who will go unnamed says hold the relish. Another person in my family, also unnamed, said, hold the relish, hold the onion. Another person in my family, if you're counting, that's four. We have six. Another one going unnamed says, barbecue sauce only. The last one says, plain hot dog, no bun either. And do you have any chicken in the freezer that we could grill up instead? So if on a given Saturday, my wife Eileen announces, how about hot dogs for lunch today? It's not a call for everyone to have the same opinion for what that exactly looks like. It's the larger opinion of saying, for lunch today, we could enjoy hot dogs as a family as the meal choice. To demand the same opinion. When I say hot dog, I mean ketchup, mustard, relish, and onion is to cause division. All we're saying is we're going to have hot dogs to have the same mind about what's on the menu for lunch, to have the same heart that we're going to come together and you do you and I do me and you do you. Everybody has the hot dog the way they want to have the hot dog, but together we're a family having hot dogs for lunch. We see ourselves as a family even while we have varying opinions. And Paul already wrote about this sort of family unity earlier in verse 10 by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The name in which we are all called, all of us Christians. Previously, Paul wrote about family unity already in verse 9. You were called into the fellowship of God's Son. All of us called into the very same fellowship with the very same Son of God. There's unity there inherently. Um, Paul will write again about this unity in verse 17, past uh, our current moment of, of study here in verse 10, by the cross of Christ and by its power. One mind. We could call it harmony. And Paul seems to stay on this topic for two full chapters. 
Get used to it. We're, we're going straight through 1 Corinthians, Lord willing. There's two full chapters that Paul devotes to this topic at the start of his letter. Because the last verse of chapter 2 says this significantly. We have the mind of Christ. Chapter 2, the last verse, the last words, we have the mind of Christ. Paul's making the point at the end of chapter 2 that he's making here in chapter 1, verse 10, that believers are not the ones who hold together the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is what holds believers together. The mind of Christ we have. The one unified mind of the Lord Jesus Christ is what we each have. And so whenever churches experience arguments, arguments swelling up on their way toward divisions, the, the first step back to unity is to ask ourselves, to ask each other, what is the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ on this matter? What does our God say about our debates, about our disagreements, about our opinions? We must be very careful with this first step. If we're divided, if we're arguing and we ask the wrong question, we cause more problems. For example, if a church asks, whose side is God on? It's an inherently divisive question. It's the wrong question to ask. It doesn't help. God is on the side of all of his children. We're all God's children. So instead of appealing to God that both sides would would each say, God is on our side. We would view the situation, oh God, would you help us to view this situation the way you view the situation? That's what unites us. What is God's diagnostic of what really is going on? That's how we get steps towards no divisions. Secondly, Paul writes, no quarrels. Verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my friends. I have to laugh at the Greek word order here. To the English person, reading the Greek, if I just put each Greek word out in front of you, directly translated in the order in which it is in Greek, it sounds like Yoda from Star Wars. Strife among you there is. Strife among you there is. Can't you just hear Yoda quoting Paul? It's an announcement. It's a shocking announcement. Paul is he's been waiting to say this. This is what drove him to write in the first place. Strife among you there is. It had begun already. Paul's minding his own business and doing God's work and on mission trip from one place to another and he hears from Chloe's people. Strife among you there is in his precious church in Corinth. Quarreling had already begun. It was on the pathway towards divisions. Quarreling here is a word that means rivalries, contention, discord. It's the plural quarrels. You know, the, the issues that keep on coming up, special rivalries that exist. We could use this word to refer to baseball, Brewers versus Cubs. That's a quarrel, a rivalry. It's never going to be resolved. Either my team wins or your team wins. Packers and the Bears. Maybe that's appropriate today. Never going to be resolved. Either my team wins or your team wins. It's the quarreling. There's no way to just say, let's just get along and we'll win the first half of the game, you win the second half of the game, we'll all agree. There's, there's none of that. Quarreling is 
an irreconcilable difference there. And it's as predictable in church communities as it is in other communities. Certain rivalries. Strife there is among you there is. I offer illustration. I, I do hate to do this. Some of you focus on the illustration and forget what I'm illustrating because it's about me or my family. And I risk it here. I'm trusting you. When our children were very young and they fought with each other, yes, that happened. It was the hardest thing for me as, as a parent. My, my son would do something to my daughter. I have two sons, two daughters. And I would sit him down and I would say to him, I don't know if you understand what a father is. I would do anything to protect my daughter. A marauder comes, a robber comes, in the house, in the community, at school, wherever we are, in the car, I would do anything to protect my daughter. And now here in this situation, the one who's presenting a risk to my daughter is my son. I also would do anything to protect you, my son. So you put me in this raw, difficult situation where you get me all fired up to protect my daughter, but I can't smash my son either. I'm all fired up to protect you, and so we have got to figure this out. I'm supposed to protect both. And so all of you, I would gather a whole family meeting, all of you sons and daughters adopt the view of the family that the father has. We love each other or get along. Stop fighting and adopt my view of things. And that's what Paul is pointing them to. Adopt the father's view of the church in Corinth. One wants this toy. There's only 50 toys in the room. Everybody wants that toy. Why does everybody want the same toy? There's four kids and 50 toys. Pick 10 toys. Adopt my view of it. Pick a different toy. That's my view. Later in life, same problem. I talk now to husbands and wives for a second. There's one remote control. Two spouses. Why does each spouse want the very same remote control? And I know what happens. You proliferate screens, have a different screen in a different room and a different remote control rather than resolving it. Fast forward through life, it doesn't change from the illustration of the children. And the parents' perspective is for all of us to be thankful for the home, all of us to be thankful for all the toys and all the screens and all the remote controls and share like those who love one another. Share like siblings. The mind of Christ for his family The mind of the parent is what unites the house. The mind of Christ is what unites the body of Christ. Divisions, quarrels, rivalries, Paul has the antidote. Be of one mind, be of Christ's mind. It actually is a very serious matter. He he says, my brothers, whenever he's addressing something that's very serious, that he's asking them to take a, a really good look at. Quarrels, my brothers? Paul can hardly believe it's so. When he left Corinth to go on his mission trips, they were getting along famously. 
How could rivalries develop among your own brothers and sisters in Christ? Christ is the one who helped us pull down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Which is a much bigger problem, in case you don't know. Problems between brothers and sisters in Christ. What, what could possibly come between us after that? Paul went on to explain what Paul meant by quarreling. Verses 12 and into 13. Let me read it again. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Paul had been formally informed about the quarrels in the Corinth church. And so he's saying, he's addressing this. He's saying, okay, now let's get down to the issue why I wrote the letter. The church has created many churches within it. And those many churches within the church each have their own favorite person. And so the irony was that these persons would not want quarrels to start around their person. Paul didn't want a personal follower following. Apollos didn't want a groupie group. Cephas is another word for Peter. Peter didn't want, Peter didn't want to start up his own splinter group. No one announced a startup of his own little team of followers, with a group within the group, a mini church within the church. Paul was a great writer, but apparently not as great a preacher as Apollos because Apollos was an eloquent preacher, but he didn't write any circulating books that we now have, you know, written by Apollos. They didn't become books of the Bible. Paul, the great writer, Apollos, the great preacher, didn't see themselves as competitors. They saw themselves as teammates. And in the same way, Peter was highly respected and probably visited the church in Corinth. And all three of them, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, were fellow workers in the kingdom. And all members of the church in Corinth were supposed to be followers of Christ. So what sort of group is that? That subgroup is one that refused to go along with the mind of Christ, and we're starting quarrels. So Paul asked questions that address this matter of how the quarrels got started in the first place. Verse 13, first question. Is Christ divided? I mean, that's one of those what you call rhetorical questions. It's an obvious answer. No, of course, Christ is not divided. Well, then how could the people of Christ divide themselves against each other? Apparently, the Corinthians were acting as if Christ had been divided into various groups. Verse 13, second question. Was Paul crucified for you? Again, a rhetorical question. Obviously not. No, of course not. Paul wasn't crucified for us. He's still living. So why ask it? Why ask obvious rhetorical questions? It's a stark question designed to jar them out of absurd thinking by showing them the absurd logical misstep and how it leads to the next logical misstep of their quarreling. Even those who were acting like groupies or followers of Paul would have to admit that Paul ought not to be the one that they actually follow because Paul was not the one who actually died on a cross to deliver them from their sin. So it logically follows in gospel and spiritual logic that no one should say, I am of Paul. Everyone should say, I am of Christ. What is it that unifies? I am of Christ. And that's the way all the quarreling could come to an end, at the cross of Christ, which brings us to our third point no disagreements especially about the basics and sadly in the church of Corinth the very symbols of unity were being used to divide there ought to be no divisions anywhere but especially not divisions about the signs of agreement 
We have three listed here. Baptism, preaching, and the cross itself. First baptism. If we ask the watching world about the church of Jesus Christ, what's one thing that causes disharmony in the church? They would probably say baptism. You know, you have the Catholics and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians that baptize babies, and then you have the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the, the Bible churches and the megachurches that baptize adults. They would probably say that. People who don't know a whole lot about it, a whole lot about Christianity or the details or the big picture of Christianity would probably say baptism is something that separates the churches from one another. That is extremely sad. Baptism is itself a symbol of the unity of Christendom. Baptism unites us. In verse 13, Paul's next question is, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Another rhetorical question with the obvious answer, of course not. Already when the early believers in that day received the sacrament of baptism, they were baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They were not baptized in the name of Paul, of course not. Baptism itself implied that the person being baptized now completely identified with the person into whose name he or she had been baptized. So baptism was an action at a point in time but it carried forward permanently significance for that person. We're called Christians because we're baptized into the name of Christ and the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What group are we in? I'm a fan of Adele's voice. I can't vouch for all her lyrics, so don't hate me on that. I like her voice, okay? Adele's voice. So if you and I, as fans of Adele's voice, now join a group a club where we have a meeting, I don't know, talk about Adele's music. And you go around the room and you say, I'm a fan of Adele and I like Adele's voice and I'm a fan of Adele. Each person must be to be in the fan club. You don't join the fan club and then say, I don't like her singing at all. Every person there is unified by their admission that they like her voice. And so Paul, by asking this question, gets right down to that. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul's showing the wrong thinking of one group whose members are claiming, I am of Paul. Next person, yes, I am of Paul. Next person, are you of Paul? Yes, I am of Paul. Anyone not of Paul? Well, then you can leave. It's exclusive. It's divisive. Inherently. Each person has to be of Paul to be in the Paul fan club, and it's all based on a lie. The truth is that they're baptized into Christ through his death and resurrection. Baptism into Christ is the sign and seal of Corinthian Christians, not baptism into the name of Paul. You think this is silly talk? You think it's overly simplistic? You think it's pedantic? Paul spends three more verses unpacking this. This is one of the driving reasons why he wrote the letter in the first place, and this is how silly the thinking had become. Verse 14, Paul remarked how thankful he was that he had only baptized a few people so that this unique group, those who actually were baptized by Paul, could not possibly have become a widespread problem. He's like, I'm, I'm thankful for that. At least it's only a few people we're talking about. Verse 15, he now says that no one in Corinth should be able to say they're baptized by Paul or baptized in Paul's name. So that problem is removed. Verse 16, he gave the full accounting, best that he could remember at the moment of his writing, of those whom Paul had, in fact, baptized. 
And the point is clear. Christ wanted the believers to focus on the Christ who redeemed them instead of the person who baptized them. Christ wanted them to focus on the Christ who saved them and not the person who preached to them. Christ wanted them to follow Christ and not the brightest or best Bible teacher that they could find to write or to preach or to shepherd them or to baptize them. So if you come to a Reformed church that's right thinking and you come in the door and you say, <clears throat> I just I didn't want to mention this or drop a name, but I've been baptized by the son of R.C. Sproul. Somebody else in the group says, oh yeah, I was baptized by R.C. Sproul himself. You were baptized by the son of R.C. Sproul? I was baptized by R.C. Sproul himself. And everybody in the Reformed Church turns to those two and they say, all due respect to both of you, so what? We were all baptized, including the two of you, if they did it right, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that is the privilege, not the name-dropping. That's how silly their thinking had become. And so they needed the letter. Both of those ministers should be baptizing in the correct way. And both of those men, by the way, R.C. Sproul himself, God rest his soul, and the son of R.C. Sproul would say amen and say, nobody should ever mention that they've been baptized by me at all. You say you were baptized with a Christian baptism. And we're all in the same church because Christ was crucified for us and we're baptized into Christ because there's one baptism and there is no one else. Baptism unites us. Secondly, gospel preaching unites us. He goes on to say this in verse 17. Paul emphasized that Paul was not sent to baptize. He could baptize, but it's not the driving force. It's not the central mission. Instead, Paul was sent to preach Christ and the gospel of Christ. The central point was not the sacrament of baptism, but rather the message of grace, that sinners need grace. The whole world needs grace. It's the driving force for missions. It's why we gather every Sunday. Baptism included an explanation of its meaning and sprinkling with water. Yeah, that's wonderful. But preaching required Paul's vast training by God's providence in the school of Gamaliel with his spirit-filled wisdom, his skills at teaching, and his knowledge of the scriptures. And while baptism was a privilege to conduct, it required no training. Preaching was a constant labor of expounding the scriptures, calling sinners to repent, to believe, and to live and grow in Christ. Baptism, a one-time action per person, but preaching, continuing to happen every Sunday in Corinth and around Asia Minor and around the world ever since. Paul is not denigrating baptism here. Paul put great value in baptism and insisted that it has to happen. After all, Christ himself commanded that we baptize. However, the central calling of Paul was in preaching and proclaiming the cross of Christ Jesus by which we're cleansed. It's what the baptisms all point to. Let's stay on the majors. Major and the majors. Jesus called disciples to become fishers of men who catch other men in the act of sinning and proclaim to them the good news of Christ Jesus by the foolishness of preaching, which he will write in the very next verse, verse 18. Preaching brings believers together. 
All the preachers were saying the same thing. Apollos and Paul and Peter and all the ministers that they ordained were saying the same thing. That Christ, by his grace, has forgiven sinners and that's what unites us. It was not the preacher's ability with words. It's interesting that in verse 17, he goes out of his way to mention that. It was the message itself. It's not in the delivery. It's in the content of the preaching. Think about it. Think with me. You could have an amazing delivery. But if it's wrong, it's unhelpful. Or you could have a bumbling delivery. But if it's the gospel of Christ Jesus, it feeds your soul. That's what he's saying in verse 17. How do we know if a preacher's content is right? Aha! Now Paul's getting down to the meat of the letter. And he will continue to expound this in the coming verses. They would know if the preacher's content is right in verse 17 if he preached the cross of Christ and its power. Which is the third thing. Baptism, preaching, and now the third thing is the cross itself unites us. It's one of the symbols of unity. This is Paul's last point. His clinching statement in verse 17, the cross has power to unify us. Let me read all of verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, but lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Cross has power. The cross proclaimed has power to unite us. The cross of Christ must not be emptied of its power regarding divisions, quarrels, disagreements about who baptizes, about who's preaching for us now. Today it's Paul, next time it's Apollos. The power resides in the truth that the cross really was a place where Jesus Christ hung for us unto death that we might be cleansed. The power to unite believers in Corinth was in the simple basic announcing of the truth again and again, Sunday by Sunday, Jesus was dead and now he's alive. What have we seen? Christ calls us to preserve church harmony by the power of his cross. No divisions, no quarrels, no disagreements, especially about the basics of baptism, preaching, and the cross of Christ. I will conclude with this. When a car is built, this is more of a man's analogy. I'll explain it. A car is built in an uh, automobile factory. If you don't make any changes to it, it's called a factory car. The parts are factory parts. The car remains just as it came from the factory. However, if you add something to that vehicle, such as, I don't know, shiny wheels, it's called tricking out the car. It's no longer factory. The point is, you don't need a tricked out car to drive down the road. Just a factory car straight off the line in the factory, will do just fine to transport you down the road. Paul was saying the gospel is simple. It came to us straight from the cross. Don't need to add stuff to it. If they tricked out the gospel with fancy preaching, mini group churches, or following certain author, being united by a group of persons, all being baptized by such and such a certain person, they eviscerate the gospel's power. The gospel is very simple. It's straightforward. In fact, the gospel must be stated in plain terms or we empty it of its power. We were dead. Jesus died for us and rose again. Now we're alive in him by faith. 
You know how to preserve church harmony? Preach like Jesus and his apostles preached. Plain and simple. Preach what Christ and his apostles preached. The cross. All we need is the cross of Christ. Simple preaching. Factory parts preaching. To just point us back to that cross. And in that is all the power to unite those quarreling, breaking down divisions, bringing together the body of Christ, and shine the light to a dark generation. Paul wrote it here in 1 Corinthians so clearly. He echoes it in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God... The Father has highly exalted him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the cross of Christ and for his resurrection from the dead. 